On Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we take a cinematic excursion through the work of the magnificent Filipino character actor Vic Diaz. Let's go. Welcome to Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz. On this episode, we're looking at Eddie Romero's women in prison classic, Savage Sisters from 1974, starring Gloria Hendry, Cherry Cafaro, Sid Haig, Eddie Garcia, and of course, you may be surprised as this, Vic Diaz as One Eye. I'm Liam O'Donnell, and with me as always is Smiling Jake, Doug Tilly. Uh, I want to make sure to highlight for everyone, Doug writes these notes, so he chose his own nickname, Smiling Jake. And I don't even know what that means, Doug. Why are you Smiling Jake? Okay, the reason I'm Smiling Jake is that one of the characters in the movie is credited as just Smiling Jake. I don't know which one (laughs) it's supposed to be, but I thought it was so funny. I'm like, I want to be Smiling Jake, even though I'm Smiling Jake Doug Tilly. I do like the idea that they wrote that into the script, and then in the editing room, they're like, which one is Smiling Jake again? (laughs) Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It just slows the movie down. Just keep it going. Uh, Yeah, so... uh, I'm glad to be back here talking about Vic Diaz again. I hope you all are excited that we're diving back into uh, just just the amazing variety of films. Uh, but we have an update on from one of our episodes that we did recently. <laughs> it's it's less of an update in the sense that it's new information, but it's new to us. Uh, apparently, the director of Blood Fist, you may remember uh, recently we covered Blood Fist and we did not enjoy ourselves, uh, but we covered Blood Fist. Apparently, he was one of the Banana Splits. Doug, are you a Banana Splits fan? Well, I mean, yes, to a certain extent. It came, it was How is that my... possible? How are you a well, Banana Splits fan? Well, I mean, I love the concept of the Sid and Marty Croft type stuff, right? The, the, all these ridiculous live-action costumes and basically taking a cartoon and bringing it to life. I love that as an idea. I did not grow up with HR Pop and stuff. I did not grow up with the Banana Splits at all. It's all based on a nostalgia that I do not have. I was just a little – I was born a little bit too late for it. So kind of experiencing it. As like instead of watching it every week, just watching an episode, there is I think a lot of fun with that. Just the idea that this guy Terrence Wink- Terrence Winkless, who we've talked about a bit lately, because not only did he direct Blood Fist, he was the co-writer of The Howling. True. Um, that I was uh, reading an issue of Shock Cinema magazine, and I noticed that there was a book about the drummer for the Banana Splits, and it was written by Terrence H. Winkless. And I'm like, that name is familiar. Why is that familiar? I looked it up, I'm like, oh, that guy. He was the drummer for the Banana Splits. Amazing. So for those, weird. So we should, weird. We should let people know, by the way, for those who don't know what the Banana Splits were, it was a kid's show in the 70s about a band made up of giant, I guess, semi-animatronic uh, animals. Who, who played in a band together. So he was dressed as one of these animals um, playing the drums in this in this fake rock band. But they're probably best known for, for the Banana Splits theme song, um, and kind of legendarily covered by the Dickies. Now, Doug, did you enjoy the Banana Splits horror movie that came out recently? Now, I did watch that horror movie, and I have to say, I didn't love it or anything like that. I thought it was pretty decent for... 
what it wanted to be. I did like the concept, which is taking this actual legitimate kid show and turning these characters into these horrific things. After the recent release of Wally's Wonderland, this is already a cliche now at this point, uh, which covers similar ground, a kind of a Five Nights at Freddy's type thing. Uh, the Banana Splits movie is much, much better than that. But it, it's more because it embraces the fact that it's just a schlocky, low-budget horror movie. Now, you said you like, uh, at least in theory, these productions like uh, Banana Splits, H.R. Puff and stuff. How do you feel about Yo Gabba Gabba? Now, I love Yo Gabba Gabba. I watched a ton of it with my nephew uh, when he was a kid, and I thought it was – basically, it, it, it took the best parts of that sort of thing, but then added a lot – a lot better music, uh, a lot uh, better production value, and it, it kind of had a um, inviting sheen to it that I felt was really pleasant compared to a lot of the kids shows that were going on around that time period in particular. It really, it, you know, there was an entertainment value, but particularly because it was aiming at kids even younger than would be um, that, that a lot of the cartoon shows that are very entertaining that are currently made for kids. Yo Gabba Gabba was going for a few years before the kids that would enjoy those things, which I also find very entertaining. So for that level of kid show, I think it, it I really did like it a lot. I'm vaguely offended by your answer only because I've tried to talk you into watching kid shows in the past only to receive uh, disdain and mockery. So now I'm, I'm going to take let me, this into Let me account. reiterate, I watched Yo Gabba Gabba with my nephew. Well, uh, get your nephew over to watch some Bluey, <laughs> goddammit. Bluey's fucking great. These uh, days, if, it, if it's not uh, a YouTube video about Roblox, my nephew has no interest in it. Fair, fair. Uh, I will say, though, that Bluey is great and you should watch Bluey. Uh, here's the thing with me and Yo Gabba Gabba. I do like it as well. For whatever reason, Maeve never connected with it. We're going to mm -hmm. probably have to try it again at some point just to see if she's into it. However, I've always appreciated Yo Gabba Gabba as well as Yo Gabba Gabba affiliates, the Aquabats, because mm -hmm. both functioned as sort of a transition program for people who were failed ska and pop punk musicians. <laughs> In yep. fact, even hardcore musicians. I wonder how many people who rode the wave of the late 90s and early 2000s when you could be into one of these weirdo bands and have a living, and then suddenly you couldn't, thanks to the internet, how many of those people, because of Yo Gabba Gabba and the Aquabats, didn't end up on meth? I would guess <laughs> at least 20. At least 20. In fact, I, the number of people who've done at least one tour of the Aquabats who are not founding member of the Aquabats is almost in the hundreds, Doug. It's in the <laughs> hundreds. And so like, I bet a lot of these people would have probably ended up like on the streets if it wasn't for either this show or the Aquabats. It's it's kind of cool. And if you are someone from that period, like a lot of people sort of rode that wave of the early 2000s being into punk and, you know, kind of hardcore, whatever that might be for you, emo, all that stuff. If you follow the trail of those musicians – Chances are you've watched some episodes of Yo Gabba Gabba, uh, undoubtedly in my mind. So I mean, a lot of the design of Yo Gabba Gabba was specifically to appeal to a certain kind of parent, you know, right? Just as right. much as it was meant to to appeal to children. So I think that you know it was very successful in that you know the fact that Mark's mother's bro shows up from Devo and a lot of yep. familiar faces yep. show up at times. I, right? I will say, watching the live Yo Gabba Gabba events is hard now because there's a lot of shots of the families in the audience, and you just think like. Oh man, like this was really a time for 20 somethings. Like the 20 somethings right. in the audience are so distinct that, you know, for me, Doug, I stopped keeping track of the distinctiveness of 
of decades when the 90s ended. You know, I feel like the 90s ended and the 2000s have just been whatever. Even though 21 years have passed, I don't really think about how the aughts and the tens are distinct. And yet then you put on something like Yo Gabba Gabba Live and you're like, <laughs> oh, there was a style and aesthetic at the time. And these people are really fucking bought in. Holy <laughs> shit. It was unbelievable. The number of dudes in t-shirts and Palestinian scarves in that audience was, whoo, uh, <laughs> why are your white dudes' necks so cold in the summer? I don't understand. Anyways, let's move on here. Doug. These kids are like, what's that? Why does that man smell like a funny cigarette? Okay. <laughs> I swear to God, some of these dads were getting high in the in the line. Yeah, and get, yeah, coming yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, point is, the guy from Blood Fist, the guy who directed Blood Fist was in the banana splits. That's all you need to know. All right. We're going to take a quick break here before we transition into talking about 1974 Savage Sisters, a movie, I don't know about you, Doug, I had not seen this before now, even though my own t-shirt company put out a t-shirt for this movie. I had not seen it. Had you seen it before, Doug? No. As I mentioned in our Big Birdcage episode, the women in prison kind of genre of the mid-70s, uh, early to mid-70s, is something that didn't hold a lot of appeal to me. So it's not one that I really uh, kind of dove into. It was the thing that I most connected with, when, with with regards to Vic Diaz. So it was one that I was curious about checking out. And uh, hey, we'll talk about it. Yeah, I think I think we're going to have fun exploring it and see how, <laughs> in, some, in some ways, this isn't a women in prison movie, even though it is. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Straighten your tie and shine your shoes because company's coming. Three little maids from the toughest school in the jungle. Each one so brutal the cops called them the Savage Sisters. Get that guy! Savage Sisters. Three gals with guns and the guts to start the revolution their way. There's Joe, the field marshal, an heiress who passed up a cool million to command the Liberation Army. Mei Ling, the brigadier general, the activist who put down her books and picked up a Tommy gun. And Lynn, the colonel, lean, mean, and foxy, whether she was handling a man or a grenade. Look out! Savage Sisters, rated R, under 17, not admitted without a parent. Savage Sisters, they'll face a shootout rather than go back to prison. So beware, they're still at large. A corrupt general plans on smuggling one million U.S. dollars out of the Banana Republic. <laughs> he dominates. Local revolutionaries plan on stealing the cash, but are thwarted when a bandit leader they are working with double-crosses them. A tough cop and her boyfriend help two of the female revolutionaries escape from prison, hoping that they will lead them to the cash, which they plan on keeping for themselves. <laughs> it's 1974 Savage Sisters, directed by Eddie Romero, who we've talked about on this uh, show before, but you might know uh, from Black Mama, White Mama, Beast of Yellow Night, and the Blood Island Trilogy, uh, written by Harry Corner and Francis... H. Franco Moon. H. <clears throat> Franco Moon. Uh, apparently, this is the only movie that they did. I I don't even know if those are aliases. If that they're actually That's real true. people. Yeah, 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 the, yeah. IMDb has nothing else on them. Yeah, uh, starring Gloria Hendry, uh, Cherry Cafaro, Roseanne Ortiz, John Ashley, Sid Haig, Eddie Garcia, and of course the man himself, Vic Diaz. Uh, I. We, we sort of touched on this is a movie that neither one of us had seen before now. I'm really excited to get into it. I just want to ask you, 
you know what you thought generally of the movie um and i want to suggest as you're talking about it is this actually a women in prison movie I mean, it's a it's a really worthwhile question, right? Because it certainly would be put in the same category because it has a lot of those elements of even like the Big Bird Cage, which we've already talked about on this show, the, like the revolutionaries, uh, women getting captured, put in a prison. That happens in this movie. But then the series of events and the kind of secondary female prisoners, that's not part of this. It's not about the torture. It's not about, I mean, there are elements of torture in this movie. Let, don't get me wrong. But that is a very small thing compared to kind of the larger search for the million dollars. All of these different people, the bandits, the revolutionaries, the the women at its core, uh, this kind of asshole guy by, played by John Ashley. All these people trying to get the million dollars and constantly double-crossing each other. But the thing I think that most separates it is the tone. This is a very silly fun comedy at its core and it's meant to be funny all the way through there are elements of humor in the big birdcage and in some other women in prison movies i've seen but this this the tone of this took me by surprise i was expecting something more serious i was delighted to find that this movie does not take itself very seriously at all now duck have you seen black mama white mama i have yes I felt like, uh, because that movie came out before this one, it felt to me like what Black Mama, White Mama does is is have the core of the Women in Prison movie and then sort of break free of that a little bit, right. sort of expand that world a little bit. I felt like this was our man uh, learning from that lesson and doing a movie that I'm sure telegraphed in its advertising the appeals of Women in Prison, but is also something different. And, and part of that, uh, is worth saying like this is definitely a film that is reliant upon the sexiness the uh the the heterosexual appeal or mm -hmm. you know maybe uh maybe not just hetero but the sexual appeal of our three sort of female uh major protagonists and yet it's not nearly as exploitative of their bodies as a normal prison women in prison movie is that a lot of women in prison films you have to have a lot of nudity for the movie to even sort of work for the audience. That the audience is looking for a certain amount of, of uh, let's be like really fair, unjustified nudity. That Come up with any scenario to be in a shower or to have a fight where clothes come off. Just, just ridiculously yeah. exploitative moments. And this film, again, is still very sexy. It still very much has a gaze to it, and yet there is not nearly as much nudity, and the sexy moments that are there are not as completely unjustified as these movies tend to go. Do you think that's fair, Doug? Yeah, absolutely. I also think that this movie, and I'm not going to try to make an argument that it spends as much time uh, gazing at the male characters as it does the female, but the fact that it also includes... This John Ashley character, W.P. Billingsley, Ashley also produced this, by the way, as he did with a number of Filipino movies around this time period, that this Billingsley character, he it does spend a lot of time focusing on him, maybe because he is the producer, but also he is such a buffoon and such a goofy, kind of fun, sleazy character. I feel like it tempers the fact that these three women are all very competent and are never yep. shown to be goofy and silly throughout the movie at all. And they take things very seriously. And also, you know, before even though they're, everyone is involved in double-crossing at this point, that they're the only ones competent enough to see it coming uh, before it happens and to try to find ways around it, Th that was the thing that was most refreshing for me. And again, I don't want to compare it entirely to The Big Bird Cage, which is a movie that I enjoyed too, on a certain level as well, but you, just going back to what your first point was, it, it breaks it out from 
the the cliches of the women in prison and the the kind of female exploitation movies of this time period and i wonder liam if that this movie was produced by roger corman instead because this feels very much like a roger corman movie from this time period if it might have had more of those elements and the fact that it wasn't that this is uh more of an independent production that it was able to kind of go in different directions or the other side of that this was at the end of the women in prison cycle so it was already trying to do different things I don't know. I think that's a fair question. I mean, we could argue that our director had learned from some of his other experiences or was trying something different. I also wonder, and, and this is something I found myself thinking, are the things about this movie that I'm finding encouraging uh, in some ways, would they be satisfying for the audience? Like One of the things you can say about Roger Corman, and I think this is fair, is that he definitely knew his audience. He made films that were like, very much about what he at least thought the audience wanted, and, and I think pretty accurately. Do we think that audiences might have been a little frustrated with this movie not being the women in prison movie they were expecting? Um, or do you think they would be inspired or excited about the ways that this sort of breaks that trope uh, open a little bit? There's still a lot of female flesh on display. Oh, yes, for sure. And there's a lot of sexual content. Again, I love the idea. My favorite character in this movie uh, it might be the Billingsley character, but I really love Eddie Garcia as Captain Morales yes. in this yes. movie. He is such a great, like, uptight. You know, this is a character that you see in every one of these women in prison movies. This uptight guy who's running the prison camp, basically, and is torturing these women for the pleasure of himself. Well, they, they turn it around a little bit, right? They He has this S&M relationship with uh, Matron Ortega. Uh, who who runs the women's prison? Where where he has to act like a dog for you know the the they really do subvert a lot of expectations here. Well, that was and, some of the stuff that I was thinking about, Doug. Like it, the film does not. I I don't want to come down too hard on women in prison movies because I enjoy them, and so yeah. if I if I make it sound too bad, then I'm sort of like selling myself out here. But I do think there's an aspect of making the women look stupid. Some at least some of the women, and in this film, or weak at the very least, right? Right? Because yeah. they're, they're victimized for usually yeah. the first three quarters, and then they get to take power at the at the end. But in this movie, the characters never feel like they're victims, right? And there's no strong, literally, it seems to me, and maybe I'm estimating it wrong, the only redeemable male character is our dead revolutionary, who, who, by the way, is already like making us uncomfortable in being a revolutionary. Outside of him, everyone sucks. Like, you know what I mean? Like, every dude is not great. Even our charming guy is is a buffoon right he's he's yeah. a he's a he's a joke and in some ways he's kind of in a power position and, and i think there's probably some racial stuff you know colonial stuff going on here with him being the like in power white man in the banana republic but he's also played for laughs so much that really yeah. the only respectable characters are these three women who are so strong even the one who is at first presented it to us as a villain because she's a cop yeah. and a torture cop. She eventually sees the writing on the wall and switches sides. Yeah. Like there's something I think very interesting about playing that narrative this way. And also that, that it's told us, we're told in the movie that she was a prostitute before, right? Right. And that she, you know, she, it's very clear. And she says it herself. Money is the thing that inspires her. That is what she's chasing. So of course she wouldn't have any loyalty to this, this obviously, um, unpleasant regime in whatever area this is supposed to take place in as soon as there's an opportunity to find money elsewhere she chases it and good for her the motivations for the three women are all very different you know rosanna artiz's 
uh, character Mei Ling, she wants to continue the revolution. Sherry Kafaro, she wasn't that interested in the revolution in the first place. She just fell in love with one of the guys. There's a suggestion that she's supposed to be like a Patty Hearst type character that has gotten kind of wrapped up in this revolution. But but whatever the motivations are, we like these three characters and we want all three of them to succeed, which is, I mean, I guess you find that in regular, in other, I should say, women in prison movies as well. But for this movie, it feels like they're what they're going through is an adventure as opposed to yes. torture. Um, I want to ask you about some of your favorite performances here, mm. uh, but I, but I kind of want you to actually start with Sid Haig and... <laughs> You know, I don't know if this will be your favorite or least favorite performance, but Sid Haig plays the character of Malavasi, who appears to be Mexican. And 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 um, is he supposed to be Mexican in the film? And then I guess side note, you know, don't get too distracted by this. Where does this movie take place? Because maybe it's not in the Philippines. I, I don't know. I mean, I think we got we ran into the same thing with the Big Bird Cage, right? I think it's supposed to take place somewhere else you know doesn't matter where a it place is. with it's brown people a place with brown people a place where there is a tumultuous political situation which in you know just like now in the 1970s there was a lot to choose from at that point sid haig i think is 100 percent supposed to be mexican oh, in this. Gosh. he wears a sombrero his skin has been darkened slightly he speaks in a ridiculous accent not that uh people from mexico have ridiculous accents but sid haig's accent is ridiculous well he, his performance makes uh speedy gonzalez seem culturally sensitive <laughs> and i mean he is he is unrepentantly evil in this movie to the point where he's killing his own man all the time throughout it's impossible to understand why anyone would consider him a leader at all it's literally the only person who seems to like him is the one eye character which we'll get to in just a bit but uh i think sid Haig is a ton of fun in this but you have to recognize that he is absolutely doing some brown face shit in this yeah it's hard because i think part of the appeal of sid Haig, we should just name this from the beginning is that he is ethnically ambiguous right yeah and that was part of why he got cast in these movies so much was a combo of he is over the top willing to do anything on camera to make the movie work so that's great but b he is kind of you know uh as you once called me a swarthy white man you know he is not he, it's not clear what his identity is at least to the audience i'm i'm pretty sure for people who knew him they probably were f- pretty familiar but I, i'm guessing that for a largely sort of uh, let's be honest culturally insensitive audience they'll buy him as almost anything Honestly, yeah. At least Sid um, Haig was Armenian, or at least his family right, comes right, from an Armenian right. background. Yeah. So I mean, it, that's the kind of thing which would, and and also I guess a willingness to spend as much time in the Philippines as he possibly could uh, got him a lot of these kind of similar type roles in this. This one I think is is more overtly villainous than some of his other roles, but I mean he is still a lot of fun in this. But straight up, like I, you know, this is the you know since we were just talking about how this blows up some of the tropes of women in prison. Let's be clear. That's not to say it's free of no uncomfortable stereotypes. In fact, the the what's interesting is with the for me is that these set in the Philippines exploitation movies they could occur anywhere, and the only reason for this one I very much was thinking but where is this supposed to be is because of his horrifying Mexican stereotype which makes you think well they have to be somewhere where a Mexican <laughs> gentleman who feels like the worst uh western stereo you know uh, by western I mean western sure. film stereotype mm-hmm. of a of a of a person from Mexico uh 
it's got to be somewhere where he would get to, right? Which is like unlikely the Philippines. So, but also a, a place that's far enough away that he has right. trouble getting out of that yes. place afterwards. So it's an island nation of some kind. <laughs> yeah. It's strange. It's strange. And then you compare, combine that with uh, Vic Diaz, whose performance we'll get to later in the show. Um, it's a weird. Co- they're a weird team. The two of them is, is an interesting team, <laughs> and I and I found it. As much as I probably should have found it offensive, I mostly just found it funny because it's so over the top and dumb. It's just yeah. ridiculous. One uh, th- I just want to mention quickly because one of the things we mentioned with the Big Bird Cage is how the Filipino actors and actresses get backgrounded in that movie, and particularly that that they're used for some of those exploitative elements solely. Right, there were a lot of naked Filipino bodies on display in the Big Bird Cage for characters that had no name and no lines. They were just there to be kind of flesh and here there are elements of that here as well but because we don't get as much of that prison stuff and a lot of background characters there are more up look there are more opportunities for performances now let's make it very clear that there's Gloria Hendry is a black actress Sherry Cafaro is a white actress along with Rosanna Artis who is a Filipino actress they are the core of this movie but we also have Eddie Garcia, the Rita Gomez character gets a lot of, of screen time in the movie. There's at least more of a presence of Filipino actors. And I think my interpretation would be from the fact that that is because they have a Filipino director on hand here, who is still, of course, interested in marketing this to to the United States, but but I think wants to have a little bit more representation. Or maybe that's just how I'm, I'm what I'm taking from it. And of course, I mentioned all those names, didn't even mention Vic Diaz. Sure. Yeah. Right. Well, since you were just mentioning names, let's talk about some of those performances. We, we, sure. I think we both enjoy Sid, Sid Haig in this. I think you were very right to bring up Eddie Garcia, uh, that performance of Captain Morales. It's any time in one of these uh, Filipino exploitation movies where you can have a Filipino character again, other than Vic Diaz, who is like memorable, is like worthwhile to me because <laughs> in a lot of these movies, part of the reason we remember Vic Diaz is because he's the only memorable Filipino character. And in this film, that's just not the case. Now, granted, I don't think Captain Morales is supposed to be in the Philippines, but as far as uh, you know, actors from the country actually getting memorable roles, this film has a few of them. Um, but who else's performances in the film kind of stuck out to you are worth mentioning? And if anyone really like stunk it up as well, I. I want to make sure that we talk about the women in this film. One hundred percent. Right. So far, it feels like we're fixating entirely on the men. The men are lucky in the sense that yep. they get to have these big, showy, goofy roles. The women have to be more serious in this, and and that means that they are not as necessarily um, they're not as fun in terms of characters. Uh, that said, I think Gloria Hendry is great in this. I think she's a lot of fun. Like, I mean, that that in some ways it's kind of a Pam Greerish role that she's playing, but I think she does a really good job as, as a character that has to be both believable as a hard-ass torturing cop, but also someone that you can feel sympathy enough that later on she can join with, quote-unquote, the good guys and get away with it. Sherry Kefaro, she's a little bit more iffy, I think, in terms of her performance. She didn't blow me away. I, I've seen her in other uh, roles in this time period that I think that she was uh, brings a little bit more charisma to it. Um, and Rosanna Ortiz kind of gets... She doesn't get a lot of time in it. One of my favorite parts of the movie, and one of the things that's very memorable, is that they're trying to find out, these three women, whether Billingsley is uh, trustworthy or not. So the way that they do that is knowing that they're supposed to split the money four ways, they each go in and have sex with him. 
And afterwards, he promises each of them that they're just going to split the money between himself and their self and leave the other two out of it. And <laughs> you think that they would have found out after the first two had sex with him and he said that that's what he was going to do, that he was untrustworthy. But it's this great sequence where one goes in and some of the dialogue is the same as he goes through each one. Talk about a very overtly, broadly comic bit. Maybe John Ashley made sure that that was in the movie. But again, he doesn't come out of it looking like a sex machine or anything like that. He just looks like an untrustworthy, sleazy goof, which is exactly what he's supposed to be. But so that, that I, I don't mean to go back to John Ashley. I just find that character a lot of fun. But what I should say is that I think our three leads are all very competent. But Gloria Hendry is the one that I think did uh, the best of it. And I do think Rita Gomez, uh, as a matron Ortiga, she is great too. Uh, she She... She is dispatched of kind of unceremoniously in the movie, but I thought that she was a lot of fun. I agree with everything you are saying, <laughs> uh, especially Gloria Hendry is just just the standout performance in the film. Yeah, you know, I mean, Cherry Kafar was fine. I just think Joe Turner's underwritten, um, and really, at least at first, her only character trait is her commitment to a man which is not really the most interesting thing you can have i do love the fact that like she has this boyfriend who's a revolutionary he gets like two lines and then just gets fucking murdered we know nothing about their revolution usually in these movies when they like even with the big bird cage we spend a lot of time with the revolutionaries and even though their their motivations might be a little bit mixed up that that we find out that they're supposed to be good guys because they're fighting for freedom against this regime. Here, we barely know anything except for that they have somehow gotten themselves mixed up with these bandits who are they look very silly for trusting in any way. Yeah, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's it's like I said, he's the only um, he's he's one of the only respectable male characters in the film, but he's not very <laughs> smart. Right. He certainly doesn't have the wildest. And I, and I will say there's an aspect to the movie that we can get to in a sec where a million dollars seems more important to everyone than any kind of revolution anyway, in some ways. <laughs> but but I do want to I do want to say, like, I, I, I appreciate that as well. And I do think by the end of the movie. Joe Turner becomes a slightly more interesting character. You know yes, what I mean? Absolutely. Um, and I also like I you know there's a sneaky way in which this film actually has some like not great but pretty good for the time martial arts moments. Like all three of these women have experience fighting and so we get to see them fighting you know and it's believable right like joe turner and may lang have been part of a revolution lynn jackson has been working for the government so like you believe that they could at least hold their own in a fight and it's kind of fun i don't know i yeah. found that particularly fun that aspect of the film yeah, when yeah there's, there's a lot of gunplay in it as well but there's this great bit where they're beating up some guards uh, and Roseanne yeah. Ortiz throws one over her shoulder and he goes crashing through a table i think that it was a really fun action moment yeah, and I, I, I like that because not a lot of these, again, similar films, I don't want to do too much comparison, they don't often have as many times for uh, the female characters to get really in and like fight, fight. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I appreciated that aspect of the movie. Um, I do think it's strange, like, all of these films seem to be uh, not very respectful of these revolutionary forces. I mean, in this movie, the revolution pretty much takes a backseat to the million dollars until the end when it seems like Mei Ling at least is going to take the money and help the revolution like is this I mean just... she, she she never wavers though Mei Ling is always fair, committed fair. to the revolution and like she there's never any suggestion that she's going to do anything but take the money that she gets from the split of the million her 250,000 and she's going to take that and bring it right to 
funding the revolution. Uh, and Joe Turner, as you mentioned, she gets more interesting because after her boyfriend is killed, she doesn't care about the money anymore. She just wants to get revenge on Sid Haig's character. She gives her money away to Mei Ling. It is still weird that Mei Ling appears to be a Chinese character in this movie, played by a Filipino actress. Again, making the the where this is supposed to take place and who the revolutionaries are a little bit more confusing as well. Again, probably intentionally confusing, but at least there's one character who doesn't waver because we do not get uh, a more of a sense uh, about what the revolution is supposed to be outside of the fact that the captain and the general are all sleazy assholes. So you know that they're the bad guys. Yeah. There's a sense in which, um, you know that that the revolution. I mean, it, it is very interesting that the revolutionaries couldn't possibly figure out what to do to get that million dollars. You know, like that whole scene where they're betrayed by the outlaws is like, come on, guys! Like, yeah, what did, right? What did you they're- think was going to happen? But it, I, I kind of was wondering. You know, do you think this is just a sign of the times? Like, right now, if I were to make a film and I were just to suggest, like, whatever country we're in that's in the southern hemisphere or in the two-thirds world or however you want to say it there's probably a revolution going on that would be weird right but in the 70s was it just like this feels contemporary oh there's palm trees then there's definitely a revolution going on like is that just a response to kind of the moment that people were in in 1974 i think at this point it's a response to the kind of movies that have already been made that's right uh, and, yeah and i think it, 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 that it's not necessarily uh, something that's still hanging in the air, though I imagine to a certain extent it was. But um, and I, I mentioned already uh, the idea of Patty Hearst that was still kind of in the news, so people were thinking about revolutionaries generally and these kind of groups. I just think that it's a time of political upheaval in the United States and elsewhere in the world, and the fact that the the pattern and the uh, the story of that has already been told in similar movies. So they just use that as a background element. But you're right, the revolutionaries in this movie are seen as impossibly naive, even to the point where one of the men themselves within it are like, what if they double cross us? And the guy's like, I guess we gotta take that chance. And that is like, it seems like seconds before they're all <laughs> slaughtered. <laughs> Probably wasn't worth taking the chance after all. Well, and especially in a film where it seems like three very capable women have almost completely brought the country to its knees. You'd think right. that like this revolution would, could be a little bit like more effective than it is. You know, I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to know. But um, I, I, I was thinking about this idea. Like we, we've sort of touched on it a little bit, but you know, covering Vic Diaz means we see a lot of the Philippines as kind of just a backdrop for any kind of um, adventure in the jungle whatever that's going to be, whether that's, you know, so the particularity of the Philippines is kind of irrelevant. What matters is we need American characters, some white, some not white, uh, but relatable American characters involved in shenanigans in the jungle, whatever those shenanigans are going to be. Uh, and, and, and for the first time, I just started to think about that, like, you know, covering Vic Diaz, of course, that's a lot of what we're seeing because a lot of these films were made in the Philippines. But um, how do you sort of think of that as the Philippines as kind of a, I don't know, a blank canvas for our imaginings of adventure, specifically for American filmmakers? I mean, it. I think it goes through fits and starts. The fact that the Philippine, no, the Filipino film industry, at least with its connection to the U.S., would fall apart at the end of the 1980s when they stopped making Vietnam movies in the Philippines 
that that it shows that I mean, if they didn't have movies being made using this as subject matter, then they probably wouldn't be making movies at all. I mean, we're going to hit that, right? In the 1980s, Vietnam and basically Apocalypse Now, post-Apocalypse Now, movies about Vietnam were being made in the Philippines. And, and Vic Diaz appeared in a lot of those as well. So it's, it is not a pleasant thing to think about that it's just used as generic jungle land that you can paste these different plots onto. But uh, it, it, it d- did serve a purpose for these, I think these exploitation movies that want to feel tied into current events, but not so tied in that it seems like it's making any statement about those current events. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a sense in which this is contemporary, but we don't have a con- uh a viewpoint you know what i mean like no one is like this is what we think about what's going on in the philippines it's like not really a thing but But also it doesn't it doesn't really take a strong stance on revolutionaries in general right yeah it makes them look a little naive here but they're obviously the good guys um and and the the kind of um the governments in these countries are shown as clearly the bad guys, but that just goes to the old-fashioned thing of, oh, the little guys are the people that we support, but also that a lot of these regimes that exist in the world are overtly, transparently evil. True, yeah. Yeah, there's sort of an idea that, like, of course, if you'd go to any of these countries, the people in charge would be dictator. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's like the, dic- like the specificity of, is this, you know, Argentina or... Paraguay or is this the Philippines it doesn't matter because in any of these places there would be uh, a Captain Morales you know what I mean like he's just there he's like a universal trope of all these places because that's how we kind of conceive of them um, it, it, I guess it was just occurring to me too Doug because I was listening to uh, the Behind the Bastards episode about Panama and I was thinking about how this is such a weird sort of film trope considering all of these figures exist in the 70s because we're directly supporting them. Like the I mean, United that's States the thing, right? is yeah, directly absolutely. propping them up. And these movies tend to not make commentary on the U.S. in any sort of negative way. Uh, and and even the ones like here where we're directed by Filipino directors where you could make that kind of comment, I guess you could interpret the uh the character um of joe turner here as being someone who got wrapped up in it in a place that she doesn't belong kind of a colonizer mentality there that she can come in and and help save things but it's it's not it's not directly commenting on the u.s influence or cause of a lot of this um upheaval that we see on screen Oh, I think it's helpful with these characters too, though. Like, I think there's a little insight in their characterization that Mei Ling is uh, more committed. Now, maybe we're confused as to why, but like, you know what I mean? Like, she has this commitment to the revolution. Um, we have uh, Joe Turner doing it because of love. Uh, and then. And Joe also, by the way, says that one of the reasons she doesn't want to take the money is that she's basically going to be taxed to hell if she goes back to the U.S. with it. <laughs> uh, but then also, like, Lynn Jackson being about, you know. Uh, being about uh, the Lynn Jackson character uh, played by Gloria Hendry as being about the money, it, it kind of allows the movie to avoid some sort of like uh, stereotype of her as her own kind of revolutionary, like the movie Savage or whatever. You know what I mean? So yeah. anyways, all that is interesting, Doug, but that's not why people listen to the show. They <laughs> listen to the show to hear about Vic motherfucking Diaz. So I need you right now to talk to me about the iconic character of One-Eye and his butt crack. So the character of One-Eye is called One-Eye because he wears an eye patch, uh, I imagine, because there's something wrong with one of his eyes. So uh, <laughs> that 
being the kind of number one guy to Sid Haig's character, Malavasi, and having a very tight shirt and pants that uh, ride low are the only defining elements of this character for the most part, outside of the fact that he's evil and he loves being evil. Um, he, like, he is just, there's no suggestion that there's any uh, texture to this character. He's just a bad guy, and he revels in it, and that's what makes him so much fun. There's a great moment with this character where he's, um, they're going to this, I guess, hideout or something along those lines. And this kid is just pestering him for money. Like, he's like, could I have some money, mister? Can I have some money? And he just places the kid in front of him and kicks him in the chest, knocking him down. This is the kind of evil that One-Eye is. Very, very fun character. He doesn't get a lot of, like, um, dialogue in the film, but he is a constant presence throughout the whole thing, even to the very end. I think even for Vic... Uh, Diaz's sort of like more goofy roles. This is can seem like a minor one, mm. but it's very fun. Yes. You know, even though it's not as important as some of the other things he's done, I think it's more fun than some of the other things he's done for me because it is so evil. You know, yeah. Uh, I I definitely think if I were him, I would be a little bummed about how much of my ass crack is on. <laughs> but uh, but you know, that's what the character is. He's sort of this kind of like doesn't care sort of guy so whatever it is what it is um you know uh, uh, whenever you're covering s- uh, uh, an actor like this of course not every role is going to be super meaty um and i you know i could have actually done with a little more of one eye because i think we would get more one eye if we got more malavasi and despite my underlying concerns about how horrifying a stereotype malavasi is right. he's just too fun not to enjoy i just i can't help it i i i know i'm failing my woke brotherhood or whatever <laughs> you know my fellow sj uh warriors are going to come after me for not uh lambasting or canceling sid hank here but i i love this performance i think it's so stupid i think one eye is also stupid but they're both stupid in a way that is really commendable it's a it's a choice and it was the right choice because it brings a, a you know like you said humor and the humor aspect of this movie helps the whole thing run very well and makes it a little less i don't know exploitative in an unpleasant way than it could be it's also we know he's going to get his comeuppance right, right. from the beginning right. right this isn't the kind of movie that's going to leave you on a dour note so the fact that and it's a very satisfying comeuppance as well with both him and sid haig buried up to their necks as the surf comes in uh in the sand uh, I just think that that in terms of this character, it's not there's not a lot more you could do with it, right? You don't want to know One Eye's background. You don't want to know how he ended up with the bandits. All you need to know is that he loves being bad, and he's going to take every opportunity to laugh at every horrible thing that's happening because he is just evil and there's nothing else to it. And that is a great role for Vic Diaz, who has that great kind of grin that he has on for most of this movie because you can tell that he's having a good time. Well... That is 1974 Savage Sisters. Uh, I highly recommend it. Doug, would you yeah. recommend it as well? Yeah, honestly, if you feel hesitant about these kind of movies from this time period, and I think that's a very reasonable hesitancy, because even though a lot of them end with women uh, taking control and kind of blasting away at their oppressors, there's still a lot of these movies that, you know, usually 75% of them, which is about. Uh, female flesh on display and people being tortured and that sort of thing. If that makes you a little bit queasy or unsure, this is, I think, a really good introduction to that that is not uh, unpleasant, that is a lot more comedic, that's a lot more fun, and that uh, I think it has a very kind of satisfying arc to it. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it it is still a part of this genre. Um, yes, but it is it, it explodes parts of it and it makes it a little more interesting. So you know, I I, I would recommend it to, honestly to anyone and not worry too much that they would be bummed that I recommended it. Uh, well, next episode we're gonna jump forward a little bit in time here, Doug. What are we covering when we come back to uh, whatever happened to Vic Diaz? This is a film, Liam, from the year 1981 called Firecracker, uh, a movie I know very, very little about outside from the fact that it has a terrific poster. Uh, The film stars Jillian Kessner um, as a female martial artist uh, who the, the, the plot summary I, IMDb is just femme fatale martial arts expert teaches the mafia a lesson. Uh, it's directed by Serio H. Santiago, one of the other major uh, kind of um, directorial figures in the Philippines in the 1970s. Uh, we've seen a lot of his work already. We're going to see a lot more of it since him and Vic Diaz were regular collaborators. So, uh, yeah, in the next uh, episode of Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, 1981's Firecracker. Hopefully you'll come back and join us for that. We're pretty excited. This poster is amazing. If you yes. are listening to this, take some time to find it. It's a great, it's it's really great. <laughs> um, uh, Doug, if people want to know more about this show or about the family of shows associated with this network, where would they go? How would they find that out? Well, you can start with Cinepunks.com, which has a lot of great writing and podcasts on all sorts of different topics. Uh, you can find Cinepunks on almost all social media, just under the name Cinepunks. That includes Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can find uh, Cinema Smorgasbord and its umbrella of podcasts over at Cinemasmorgasbord.com. That, that's a podcast devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, the career of Carol Kane. Uh, we have Cinema Fantastica about different uh, genre film festivals around the world. And we recently launched the podcast Joda Wow about the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky, uh, which you can check out at cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can also find us on social media at cinemasmorg on Twitter, S-M-O-R-G, or do a look for Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook. And of course, you can always just follow Liam and I directly to find out all the things we're up to. Follow Liam on Twitter at LiamRules, R-U-L-Z, and me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's (gasps) T-I-L-L-E-Y. Thank you, Doug, and thank you, listener, for listening. Uh, Feel free to tell people about the show, um, and we hope that you'll join us here next time. But until then, we would say good evening. Good night.